Galatians chapter 4, Paul is continuing his conversation here with these Galatians, and he's picking up and returning to his illustration of the law as our tutor, which we were looking at in the last chapter, it being in terms of a disciplinarian or a steward that someone was in bondage to until they came to maturity. And Paul returns to that in verse 1. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So Paul wants to return to this illustration. He's going to continue to contrast the bondage or slavery that you would be in under the law as opposed to the freedom that we have in Christ and that Christ wants to work in us. And in this illustration, again, he refers to the heir of an inheritance or an estate. But what he says is when that heir is still immature or not come of age, and this is an illustration they would all understand, guardians would have to watch over his person and stewards would watch over his property or his possessions until he was old enough to be able to administrate those things himself. So he couldn't just, you know, decide, hey, I want to sell half the farm and do this with it. He wasn't allowed to do that until he came of age. So Paul says he's the master of all, but he's like a slave in that he's under guardians. He's under stewards until he comes of age. Verse 3, now he's going to bring this back to their environment. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Paul says, in the same way, even so we, illustrating again this kind of idea, were under, he says, the elements of the world. Before we were waiting for this time where we would receive the fullness of the promised in Christ, we were given to the elements of the bondage of the law or the elements of of the world. The elements, the idea of that Greek word, it's the ABCs or elementary things, simple things, the beginning of things. So it's used in Colossians 2.20 and Hebrews 5.12, the very basics kind of of religious life. And he was saying, we were given over to those things. Uh, But things changed, he says, Verse 4, in the fullness of time, there became a point where God brought his purposes to a more full realization. And certainly there were practical things related to the fullness of time. Uh, When we think of the time where Christ came, Rome over the world, building roads all over the world, the Greek language where the gospel could be shared freely, there was... There were things in the practical that were obviously a part of God's doing. But more specifically here, Paul is referring to the work of Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit more than world conditions. There was a new message that was given. Mark 1, 
14 through 15 says, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time was fulfilled in a new way in God's purposes on the earth. And in that time, Paul says what made it different was first, God sent forth his son. Uh, his own son, Romans 8 says twice. Again, Jesus Christ came and he was the one who would bring this fullness about. This work was so near the father's heart that he was sent his son. And Jesus was sent forth, notice that, because, again, he was preexistent. He was already with the father. We're going to see he's sent forth here, just like in verse 6, we're going to see the Holy Spirit is sent forth, also preexistent. He's sent forth because he was with God, part of God's purposes, part of this plan that God knew all the way through. It wasn't something new. It wasn't something that was a surprise. It was something God intended all along. And Paul wants to bring out, how was Jesus sent forth? Notice, born of a woman, in verse 4, born under the law. Born of a woman and under the law. Born to a Jewish woman. Born into a Jewish nation. Born under the Jewish law. He came, the son was sent forth, but he was sent forth, born of a woman. And again, we call this the incarnation uh, the Son of God and the Son of Man. In Christ, God and man find their perfect harmony. God can perfectly interact with man and man with God. And we see both of them at the same time. Uh, there's no easy way to explain it. The Bible just declares these things. What was torn apart by sin Man and his relationship with God is seen in perfection again on the face of the earth. And only that one, the Son of God and the Son of Man, could both, as the Son of Man, perfectly fulfill the law, and as the Son of God, take the curse of the law and purchase an infinite price of forgiveness because he has infinite life. Born of a woman, born under the law, and very key to Paul's argument here, particularly with the Galatians, because there's a ton that you could say about the son sent forth, born of a woman and born under the law. But for them, verse five, to redeem those who are under the law, that they that we might receive the adoption as sons. Why was he sent forth? Why was he born of a woman and born under the law? Well, Paul says to redeem those who are under the law. Again, key to Paul's argument with them, these Galatians, law keepers needed to be redeemed. That's, that's his whole point. They want to go back to the law. They want to go back to keeping these commands. They're being tricked back into circumcision or these different types of religious festivals. And he's saying, no, the fullness of time came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Those who were trying to keep the law needed to be redeemed and were redeemed. 
Jesus came under Torah or the law to set us free from it. So why are you going back? Why are you turning back to these things? Why are you being troubled about these things? Second, he didn't only come to redeem us. He didn't just redeem us and then ignore us like, okay, you're set free. Go do your thing. See you in a little while. He says to redeem those who were under the law that for the purpose we might receive the adoption as sons. Didn't set us free and then say, now go make your way in the world. He redeemed us to be adopted as children and set free from all tutors, all guardians, all stewards, all the things that had to kind of help us along because we needed help. Christ, the eternal son by nature, different than we are, has adopted us so that we could be sons and daughters of the Lord as well. And Paul wants them again to see these things. There's been this huge shift and they were already a part of it. They had already begun to experience it. Now they're turning back and he's saying, what? Don't you see? Christ came to set us free from these things. Now, why would you turn back? Can he set you free not to turn back to the law, but that you could be adopted as sons and as daughters? And what kind of adoption? He says that in verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What kind of adoption? A very unique type of adoption. God sent his son into the world first. Then here in verse six, he tells us God sent his spirit into our hearts to conform us into the image and likeness of his son. His inheritance, his adoption is more than just money. It's life. He gives something that no actual adopted parent could ever give their child, his own life. He sends his own spirit into them and makes them truly his sons and his daughters. This is something totally different than could have ever happened with the law or keeping the commandments. This is a new purpose in God. Again, this is so unique for Paul, and he keeps coming back to this. You know, sadly, I think if we just took every church leader in America and we just asked them one question, uh, anybody who would call themselves a Christian, what is, we'll say, the defining ingredient of a Christian I think you'd have a lot of weird answers. For Paul, it's very easy what that would be. It's this, the Holy Spirit in a person's life, making them a son or daughter of God. That's the defining ingredient. That's, that's what makes us children of God. And the life of God in us that would cry out, Abba, Father. Because God wants us to experience Christ's blessings through the Holy Spirit. You notice in this verse, the whole Godhead is involved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, doing a remarkable supernatural work in all of our lives. So our adoption becomes much greater than human adoption, where we receive a legal standing or a name and resources. 
From God, we receive a literal new nature. We are sons and daughters indeed, in a way that nothing else could make us sons and daughters. And there's a literal internal witness that that is true of us. And I think that's why Paul uses a unique phrase here. He says in verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son. That's the only time Paul uses that phrase. There's some similar ones in Romans 8, 9 and Philippians 1, 19, but the only time he uses the phrase, the spirit of his son. And I think he's trying to get across to them uh, the unique application of this, that the spirit of the very son that redeemed us from the law has supernaturally birthed in us life like his. Something something that can't be done in any other human way, particularly through the flesh. A miracle, regeneration, new birth, new creation. The Bible talks about it in different ways. Again, Paul would say to the Romans, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I don't go to the law to realize I'm a child of God anymore or the fact that I'm trying to keep it in my own strength. A supernatural reality has happened in my life that I know I'm God's son or God's daughter because his spirit in me says, Abba, Father. This is something unique. And it's stronger than any bad example that we might have in human life. You know, sadly, people have bad examples of parents or they've been abandoned or have an abusive father or mother or the pictures we have in humanity. They can be messed up. But what happens in the supernatural goes beyond any of those things. God, God isn't just an example to us. God shares his life with us. And he sends his spirit into our hearts. And there is a new freedom in that that can't be found in any other type of life. And this is what Christianity is. It's not bondage to rules. It's the life of God imparted to you and I so that we literally become sons and daughters. And some people, they struggle with Christianity because they're still just in bondage to rules. They don't really know this. They don't have the spirit of God in their life. They're not actually even saved. But any son or daughter of God knows this. Because there's a simple prayer in their heart. It's as simple as a child looking at their parent and saying, Mom or Dad. It is that language, Abba, Father. It's a proof of God's work in them. That term, Abba, was used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, 36. His use of that term, and particularly his relation to the Father in general, were revolutionary in his day. To relate to God as a Father in that way was unique. It was a unique example and also invitation for the disciples to follow. There's also scholars who make a point that it's unique even in historic Jewish literature for Jesus to speak that way. 
But the blessing of it had to have been widespread because uh, when Paul writes it to the Romans and uses that same language of Abba Father, that was a church he had never been to. And there was a large portion of Gentiles in that church. And here he's writing to the Galatians and he's writing as if they totally understand these things. So apparently in the early church, this, this heart or this language of Abba Father back to God was something that was widespread and understood. And believers knew what it was. And Paul assumes they understand what it is. And what he's saying is, again, you've been set free. You're a son or daughter of God by a supernatural work in your life. And God has literally sent his spirit into your life. And now you're going to go back and try to keep the law? You've received the blessing of the fullness of times that God wanted. And you're going to go back to what was before that was just keeping you there. That's that's an immature life that needed guardians and stewards. And now the maturity that you're supposed to understand and have and freedom that you understand and have as being a true son or daughter of God, you're surrendering. They, they should have seen this. Therefore, he says in seven. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. Our freedom is actualized in experience by the Holy Spirit. Again, the spirit of his son living in us. Again, I think the application for us, we might not be turning back to Judaism, but how do we relate to God? On the very basic level, I should relate to him as a son or as a daughter. Not that we're perfect, but nothing should ever change the fact that that is what we are. You can have a kid who's a scoundrel, but you're like, they're still my son or my daughter. Nothing changes that fact. The prodigal son, when he was a prodigal, we still call him the prodigal son. That's who he was. And there's a freedom in that. And when the Bible talks to believers, it talks to them as if they understand that and they know that. It talks to them as if the work of God supernaturally in their life is real. Now, we might have questions We're like, well, what if I don't feel that? Or what if? Well, the Bible assumes that you do. And that a believer knows what it is to look up in heaven and cry, Abba, Father, because of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so when the Bible talks to believers, it talks to them as if they're sons and daughters, because they are. And because the Holy Spirit in us, when he hears that truth, because he's the one who made that truth a reality, is like, yeah. <laughs> and, and we say, you know what, Lord, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I should live like that. That's who I am. That's what you've made me. I know it. I know it. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul would say, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're not slaves to a religious system. 
I don't relate to God based on a list of rules. I relate to him as his son because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you and I should live like that. And that's the freedom that he wants us to live in. He doesn't want us to go back to this other thing where we're trying to get there. Well, he's already made that a reality in our lives. He just wants us to live it out. Be who I made you and what I'm leading you to be. Now, Paul will continue to admonish them. Verse 8, he says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul's admonishing them, and he's pointing out the reality that as adopted children of God, remember where you came from. And he says in 8, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature were not gods. The idea is being they served idolatrous pagan gods. They weren't really gods. You thought they were. You worship Zeus. There is no Zeus. But you worshiped him. And you were given over to the worship of these gods. You didn't know who God was. You didn't have the Holy Spirit in you. And you worship these other gods. And he says, verse 9, but now after you've known God, now you've come to know God or are known by God, God has made himself real in your lives. Now that you have an actual, real interaction and knowledge of who God is, how are you going to turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to, to which you desire again to be in bondage? How are you going to go back to these religious type things to try to build a relationship with God when God has already given you the thing you need to have a relationship with him, which is his Holy Spirit. It's, it's essentially saying, hey, remember your former pagan, idolatrous, superstitious lifestyle was an enslavement. And now turning back away from what God did in you, it's essentially like you're doing the same thing, except you're doing the Jewish version of it. What, what are you doing here? You might as well as go back and be slaves to, he says, the weak and beggarly elements of religious idolatry. The idea is things that didn't have power to actually introduce you to God and who he was. And you said you desire again to be in bondage to these things. Where, where is this coming from? And Paul now points out some of what those things were. Apparently, these are some of the things other than circumcision that these Judaizers were teaching them. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, uh, various religious festivals and timings and things like that. Again, the, the contrast is huge. I become a son of God by keeping religious festivals or by the Holy Spirit imparting divine life into me so that I say, Abba, Father. These are two very different things. And Paul would say in Colossians 2.16, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. These things, they're not essential to our life with Christ. 
It could be nice addendums. I mean, we enjoy Christmas and celebrating those things. But I, I don't become a son of God by celebrating Christmas or even Easter. I, I become a son of God by putting my faith in the work of Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit change me a new birth. That's way different than these religious actions. And Paul now says, and I think he shares his heart very freely in 11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. He's afraid for them. It's horrible to watch people fall away from life and grace in Christ. Uh, We've seen that here in individuals. We've seen it in groups. Usually can see it start to, you know, slowly or in little ways move to some form of legalism. It always takes some type of measured thing, you know, cel- I got to celebrate this thing or do this thing now, or you go back to some religious law system or dietary law. There's always some type of thing that people get drawn into, and you can begin to see them separate from what it is to just simply be a son or daughter of God and walk with him. But I can't imagine thinking that that was our whole fellowship. Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia might fall away from the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going through here. He's literally thinking this entire fellowship, these believers, they might all turn. And he says, I'm afraid for you. And I'm afraid my labor will be in vain. His labor would be in vain if they turned from Christ, not from him. From Christ, because to turn to the law would be to turn away from Jesus Christ. He'll say in chapter 5, verse 4, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. They're returning to bondage when they should be growing in the liberty of the Spirit of God as sons and daughters. God wants us to grow in what it means to be a son or daughter of his. And the liberty and the freedom that we have in that. When we were enslaved to sin, we were the exact opposite of his sons and daughters. We were children of disobedience, given over to the things of the world. Then he saves us. We receive new life. And we begin to learn what it is to be a son or daughter of his. And we're immature at first. Just like a baby that's born into the world is a true baby, a true son or daughter, but it's an immature son or daughter. And it begins to grow in what it means to be a son or daughter, as you and I do the same. But there's a remarkable growth in our life with the Lord. But uh, unlike the spiritual, or excuse me, the physical growth in being a son or daughter, which becomes obvious... Spiritual life as a son or daughter of God can sometimes be uh, harder to kind of notice. But eventually it becomes obvious whether you're trying to relate to God by his work or by your own work. And Paul's afraid that these people are going to fall away from Christ by refusing to relate to God based on the work of Christ in them, but on their own works. They've forgotten what it was to be enslaved. You know, John Newton, uh, who famously wrote Amazing Grace, 
Uh, I believe he got into the African slave trade. I, I think it was at 11 years old. Until about 23, did a number of horrible things. And then he was saved. A lot of those things kind of haunted him. Uh, that's why you could say, amazing grace has saved the wretch like me. He never forgot God's grace in his life, but he also never forgot his slavery to sin. This verse was mounted in his study, Deuteronomy fifteen fifteen. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. He remembered what it was to not be a son of God and the slavery that he lived in to sin. And Paul is afraid that these believers are forgetting what it is to be enslaved. God didn't set them free to be enslaved to sin or to some law, human law. Set them free to be sons and daughters. And he's concerned. He says this in verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. The idea there is, uh, and again, brethren, uh, I want to point that out. He still recognizes these immature, we confused believers as brethren. He says that a number of times through the epistles. Uh, and I think maybe that's a good example. He doesn't quickly deny the faith of those caught up in a doctrinal or moral wrong here. He's continuing to challenge them. And he says, I urge you to become like me. He, he wants to recognize and have them recognize that he used to be that person. Again, he said this earlier in the letter. Remember, I... I found all my identity in being a religious Jew. He was that person. <laughs> I want you to be like me now. He had given all that up. He says, for I became like you. I, I became like a free Gentile who believes in simple faith. I want you to be like me. I was that. My whole identity was in his Judaism was in his religious pharisaical actions. Then he found Christ and he gave it all up. Freely, happily. And he's saying, I just want you to, to do what I already did. I'm just asking you to do the same thing that I've done. He says, you have not, in the second half of that verse, injured me at all. And you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So here, Paul wants to make the point that their attitude had changed toward him. Uh, his attitude never changed toward them. He loved them, period. But their attitude changed toward him. Uh, we don't know what the issue was. Paul says at the first, he says, you guys did no injury to me. I, he came there and he says, I was so welcome. He says, because of physical infirmity, you guys know, he had some type of disease, some type of sickness that apparently caused him to end up with them. God used that sickness in his life to direct them 
to preach the gospel there. Uh, there's a lot of guesses as to what that was. We're not really sure. It ends up being speculation one way or another. But his point is clear. He says, when I came to you driven by a sickness, he says, my trial, which was in my flesh in 14, you did not despise or reject. Uh, the idea is, whatever his sickness was, it was the type of thing that would have made it a temptation to reject what Paul was saying. I don't know if he just looked disgusting. <laughs> you know, it's a semi-nightmare uh, of mine, but free confession here. Like, you know, if I threw up in the middle of the study, that would be all you could think about, right? You probably couldn't hear anything else I said. Hopefully nobody else would throw up and, you know, no pastor wants to do that ever or have to be like, time out, I got to go to the bathroom, right? There are certain things you don't want to have to do while you're preaching. So Paul apparently shows up in Galatia and has some type of physical malady or sickness that it would have been easy just to be like, don't, ill, don't listen to him, whatever's going on there. And some of it might have been superstitious. Certainly in that day, the Jews would think that if you had a sickness or a disease, God was getting you because you had some secret sin. And many of the pagans were also superstitious. Like if you had some major disease or issue, the, you had been cursed by the gods. So you wouldn't want to mess with somebody who was cursed by the gods. So there was some superstition behind it, but also just kind of practicals. Paul said, basically, you had every reason to despise and reject me when I came and I shared, but you didn't. He says, in fact, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. He's like, why, why were you so blessed? What was it that you were so happy to receive? Well, of course, it was the message of the gospel that he's talking about here. He said, why did you receive me in that state? He said, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So some people think from that that maybe it was something with his eyes. Um, we're not sure. That was just a saying as well. So the, the idea is simply, Paul was like, you, you would have gone to the greatest lengths to have surrendered something yourself to receive me, even when I was in this terrible state. So when I first came to you, that's how you treated me. Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's, this is the idea here. What's the point? You had accepted me and the gospel at first. Now you dislike me. Why? What's changed? What happened? Why are they turning from him and Christ? Paul says, is it because I'm speaking the truth to you? Is that why you don't like me anymore? Is that why attitudes have changed? I think it's a good example for us. Certainly, we're always called to speak the truth in love. Ephesians tells us that. People will not always like the truth. Certainly, we don't want to be among those who make enemies of those who speak the truth. There's a story in the Old Testament where Ahab, of course, wanted this vineyard by, owned by a guy named Naboth. Uh, he went to buy it. Naboth said no, it was his inheritance. And so Ahab goes back and basically starts crying in the palace because he's a big baby. 
And his wife Jezebel shows up who wore the pants in the relationship and was like, why are you crying? And Ahab says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And, you know, he's all upset. So Jezebel said, get, get up, get yourself together. I'll take care of it. And basically she gets some dudes to go out and murder Naboth. And, that he, and he knew this was going to happen. So he's a manipulative baby. So then she says, all right, now you can go get your vineyard. And he goes running to his vineyard all happy. And Elijah shows up with a message for him. And he says to him, you murdered Naboth, actually. Uh, even though it wasn't by his hand, he knew what was going to happen. But when Elijah shows up, Ahab says to him, have you found me, O mine enemy? That's his attitude. Elijah was Ahab's enemy because he spoke the truth. Because he spoke for God. It wasn't because he was an enemy. It was because he spoke the truth. And Ahab made enemies of people who spoke the truth. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It's very easy to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. But if we make enemies of people who tell us the truth, we're not in a very good position. Paul says to these Galatians, you loved me at one point when you had every reason to reject me. Have I become your enemy now because I speak the truth to you? Why have things changed? He says in 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. It is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would, like you to, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul goes right now at these false teachers. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. The, these false teachers gave a big showing of care, but they had devious, devious motives. They, like they really cared about, we want what's best for you. Like they had spiritual things to give them. But he said, really, they have no good in mind. In fact, he says, they want to isolate you. They, that's the idea there. Uh, exclude you, isolate you, that you may be zealous for them. Their whole motive is to make you excited about them. They just want you to be on their squad. They want to build a little team. They want you to be happy about them. Uh, you know, I think it's quite a description of our day to have a group of people out, out there zealously courting others for their cause and their group. Man, that's happening all over the place. You know, very sadly, those who often get zealously courted into these groups, the minute you don't agree with them, they're also the quickest to throw you out. How, how hard the LGBTQ community will work to court somebody. And then the minute they don't like what's happening there anymore, how quickly they're thrown out. You know, sh they don't like any stories about a detransitioner or somebody whose life has changed. 
And the same thing can happen in Christian circles. You, you want to enjoy, you want to enjoy our theological edge or bent or group. And then the minute you have a different idea, you're getting tossed to the side. There's always those out there that are zealously courting for no good. Now, Paul can't totally ignore what's happening because he says in verse 18, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. The idea is, hey, when I was with you, things were good. But I think Paul also knew, look, I'm doing the same thing. I'm zealously pleading with you Galatians. <laughs> so it's great if, if there's a good thing in mind. Paul didn't want the Galatians for himself. He didn't, he didn't need the bandwagon. And he wasn't trying to create personal followers. He wasn't trying to stack up his likes list. He didn't need more people so that he could sell more advertising. Paul didn't care about any of that. Paul did care about one thing, verse 19. He said, I want Christ to be formed in you. He wanted them for Jesus Christ. See Christ formed, the Greek there is morpho, the idea refers to inward. Christ formed in you. This was a good godly zeal. The ungodly zeal was what the false teachers had, where they just want to get you on their team and isolate you from everybody else. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Size of the Soul, says this about zeal. The truth is that though all godly persons are zealous, not all zealous persons are godly. The zeal that accompanies sanctity is rarely boisterous and noisy. So great was the zeal of our Lord that it was said to have eaten him up. Yet Isaiah said of him, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And it was he who excoriated the zealots who compassed sea and land to find one convert only to make him more evil than he was before. Not only the quantity of zeal matters to God, but the quality. The significant question is not how zealous is the Christian, but why is he zealous? And to what does his zeal lead? To the church of Laodicea, our Lord said, be zealous, therefore, and repent. The zeal that leads to penitence, restitution, and amendment of life is surely dear to God. I I think we can underestimate how many people can be won over by a godly zeal. People like zeal. Some of us are more lively than others, and we like zeal in others, but zeal in personality, zeal in religiosity, zeal in praise. Some people just, I just want a hype worship service, right? Unfortunately, you could be won over by a zeal that's really designed just to make you zealous for another person or zealous for a particular group? Am I becoming zealous for Christ and for Christ to be formed in me? It's not all about the hype. I love that reference by Tozier. Jesus wasn't known for the hype, but he was known for his zeal for the house of his father. Didn't show itself in the way that Some others feel it must. It's important that we're 
aware of those who zealously court us for no good. Despite the change in attitude toward him, Paul was going to zealously court them for good. It's good to be zealous in a good thing. But there's a lot of zeal out there for bad things. Courting people to draw them in. Paul says, verse 19, my little children. It's the only time he says that in his writings. John says it a number of times, but the only time Paul says it. He says, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He's concerned. He's likening it to another labor. He labored to see this church planted. He labored in evangelism. That was the first labor. But now that they're born, he wants to see them grow and become mature. And that's the second labor. Now I'm laboring all over again. That you have Christ formed in you. It's the pastoral heart here now that he's thinking about. Now, many of you women who have gone through a labor cannot imagine a double labor for the same child. It would be quite difficult. Uh, it's a work. Uh, Paul is certainly referencing and I think respecting that. You know, I don't, it's not revolutionary to say men and women love things differently and relate to things differently. And um, the way you love your wife is one thing. The way you relate to other males is another thing. And, you know, particularly as a male, you care about the respect from other individuals, those you work with or those you might be on a team with or those you interact with. Like, you don't need them to be, like, all loving toward you, you know? But you, like, respect them. Or you see something in their life, and you, re you respect them in a unique way, and you're like, I respect that guy. Look at the work he does. Look at how he does this. And that love doesn't always translate over uh, toward women. But I will tell you something. When you're a man and you watch your wife give birth, you're like, I respect that. That is one of the times in your life that you're like, I don't ever want to do that. And I have like a manly, great respect for my wife for doing that. I saw it twice and you're like, man, I respect that, you know. And Paul is like, it's like this is happening twice. And he's willing to go through the work here. He says, this is what it feels like. I'm laboring again in birth for you. And if I have to do that, he'll do it. And he doesn't want to be severe in it. He says in 20, I'd like to be present with you now and change my tone. He doesn't, he doesn't want to uh, seem harsh toward them. But he admits, but I have doubts for you. I think this is a great, even just language for those of us who have a loved one or a friend that we become concerned with or you're concerned with their walk in Jesus Christ. This is a great example, even just to be able to say to a person, I want to talk with you face to face because I have doubts about you. I'm concerned for you. I'm afraid of what I see. It's a great Christian way to care about others. It was the Holy Spirit working in Paul's heart, looking at these believers that he considered his little children. Ones that he birthed the first time in planting that church. And now he's working again to see them become mature sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to finish 
with this last illustration here before he gets into some more of the practicals. He says in 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And he's going to give them one more illustration comparing law and uh, freedom in Christ. Uh, in verses, quick break, breakdown, 21 through 23, we're going to have scriptural facts. In 24 through 27, we're going to have an allegorical or symbolic interpretation. And then in 28 through 31, we're going to have the spiritual application. So we'll read down a little bit. He says again, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who was of the free woman through the promise. So Paul goes all the way back to Abraham, who he referenced earlier, and the scriptural account of Abraham's life. And he, and he begins this contrast now. He mentions two sons, two mothers, two standings, and two births. So you have Ishmael and Hagar, who was a bondwoman in the flesh. And you have Isaac and Sarah, who was a free woman through the promise. So he just lays out these comparisons. Again, the unique birth uh, from Sarah and Isaac, Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, as she bore a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. That's the idea. God gave a supernatural promise of birth in relation to Isaac. Now, verse 24 down, Paul's going to give us this interpretation. He says, 24, which things are symbolic... For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem which above, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor." For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So what Paul says is, here's the facts. Now I'm going to give you a symbolic interpretation of these things. Now, the fact does that Paul does this, that he gives kind of symbolic interpretation, becomes more of a controversial issue than what he's actually saying through that illustration. Um, because... People just get crazy when you get to symbolic interpretations. There's a lot of fanciful, allegorical interpretations of the Bible that either get like wildly crazy or just straight heretical. So, you know, people get concerned when, when uh, Paul begins to interpret things this way. I'll just say this very clearly. There are symbolic and allegorical truths in the Bible. Uh, there are three things we should know about that. Number one, the truths come from actual facts in the Bible. You notice that. Paul mentions the actual facts of Abraham, Isaac, and Hagar, and all the people. And the truths he's drawing come from those actual facts. Symbols never create or change the facts of Scripture. Uh, that's when things get really weird. People start to pull out illustrations and things and make up new truths through them. Never do that. 
Second, the truths never conflict with the actual facts of Scripture. So the types or the truths that get pulled out, again, when they turn into these wild kind of symbolic interpretations, what Paul says here in this passage is things that we already know are true. He just illustrates it. They're true from the facts that we already know in Scripture. So the symbolic interpretation of things is stuff that's already given to us. And these truths are usually, even the symbols, are usually already laid out by Scripture. So what I mean by that is Adam and Eve is a picture of not only marriage, but Christ in the church. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us. The seed is a picture of the word of God. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells us. The tabernacle and the sacrificial system are a picture of, a type of Christ and his death. How do we know that? Well, because the scripture tells us. So most of the symbols that we see in the scriptures are already ones that the scripture has told us what these types and symbols are. But it does take a mature understanding of the simple facts of Scripture to see them and know them rightly. That's why Paul will say in Hebrews 5, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 5, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but I can't. Melchizedek is like two passages about him. And Paul wants to say all types of things about Melchizedek, but he says, I can't because you guys should be mature enough to eat meat, but you still need the milk of the word. You don't even know the simple facts of the Bible. So, you know, if, if you're like, hey, I want to dig into some of these, you know, symbolic type things. Just read the Bible first. <laughs> Get down the real simple facts before you worry about any of that stuff. Because any of that you come to, it's built off the things that are already clearly there anyway. So we're not all meant to be the John Bunyans of the world that see spiritual truths all over the place. So these things are there. Paul is pulling them out. What he says here very directly are there are two covenants. Verse uh, 24 right there. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem that now is and is in bondage with her children. So Paul's going to contrast two covenants. Hagar, Sinai, and the current Jerusalem are tied to the law. Hagar was a bondwoman, which means her sons were born slaves with her status. It relates to Sinai, where the law was given, and he says Sinai is in line with the current Jerusalem. Current Jerusalem was the home of Judaism. It was where Paul was linked before he came to know Jesus. It was a picture of the Judaism that had put Jesus Christ to death. And Paul is saying these things are all linked to bondage still. On the other side of that, Verse 26, the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. The other covenant relates to Sarah and to the promise given to her, which relates to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the current earthly one. Hebrews 12, 22 says you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The new birth links us to a heavenly citizenship, a heavenly life. We are born again, or the idea is born from above. So the children of the promise receive a heavenly life. They're not linked to this earthly Jerusalem, which is linked to Judaism and the law, but to heaven and heavenly things. So in the old covenant, they retain the slavery of their mother, but those of the new covenant retain the freedom of their mother, who is not a bondwoman. So Paul quotes in verse 27 from Isaiah 54, 1, which was given in context to the captives of Babylon as currently uh, barren. Uh, they had little hope, but there was a promise of future return and fruitfulness. And he's now paralleling that application with the church and the promise that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, which may have looked barren or small, but would birth many sons and daughters. So, verse 28, now he comes to the application. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. The idea is, we inherit the promises of God through faith, were born from above, and become citizens of heaven. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Isaac was born. Uh, we know from Genesis 21.9 that Ishmael began to mock him. We don't know exactly what he was saying or what he was doing, but the point here is simply... Jesus is saying, if we retain the character of Isaac, then those who retain the character of Ishmael will do the same thing that Ishmael did to Isaac. Those under slavery, under slavery and the law will mock those who are free and born according to the promise. He's saying expect persecution. The Ishmaels, the religious law keepers, will treat us accordingly, like the religious leaders treated Jesus in his day. He's saying, expect it. And now he gets really specific, verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now he's getting real specific. Sarah was not happy when Ishmael began to mock Isaac. And she said, you need to get rid of this lady and her son. And Abraham didn't like that. And God said, listen to her. And a part of the reason why Paul begins to pull out here is these two covenants cannot be intermingled. Cast, Paul's literally saying, cast out these false teachers. Faith and law and grace and works are either or issues. They can't keep, be combined. A line has to be drawn as it was with Isaac and Ishmael. No one will ever inherit the promises of God through the flesh. He's saying you have to see the application of these things. So then, brethren, verse 39. Notice, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free. And he's laid out these multiple kind of layers here. Again, over and over and over again, through the scripture, from the beginning, from their personal experience. What happened in the fullness of time? The freedom that Christ bought from us from the curse of the law and from under the law. 
the life of God in, their personal interactions with him. And finally, even this kind of illustrative, symbolic interpretation of the facts that we see in the Old Testament. And he's just laid it out over and over again. You're free as sons and daughters. Why are you going to turn back to these things? I fear for you. Live as what you are, a son or daughter of God. Let's stand. We're going to pray. I would encourage you, you know, I don't know if somebody's here, and again, I don't think probably anybody's being tempted to turn back to a particular form of Judaism, but uh, maybe we have forgotten what we're supposed to be. But if you're God's son or daughter, and you're trying to relate to him on some works basis, and he just wants you to relate to him as a son or daughter and be that freely and you need the freedom to be that, I encourage you just to ask him. Say, Lord, you know what I need. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. He doesn't, he doesn't command us and call us to be sons and daughters and then not give us what we need. If we want that. He said, if you search me with your whole heart, you'll find me. If we're half-hearted, then where we need to start is be zealous and repent. As he said to Laodicea, repent of a hard heart or a half heart. Give me a whole heart to be your son or your daughter, who you want me to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. Lord, we know this wasn't our plan, but it is better than anything we could have come up with or imagined. And Lord, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for how they're layered. We thank you for you speak different ways and you know we need to hear different things. And we thank you, Lord, that you say your sheep know your voice. And I just pray, Lord, what each of us need as your son or daughter, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit. And I do pray that you would teach us the freedom that we have in you. And that certainly anybody here who's being tempted in one way or another may be zealously courted by something that's just going to bring them into bondage. Pray that you give them eyes to see and a heart, Lord Jesus, to turn back to you and the freedom that we have in you. So thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and your love in that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.